0: What's good, fam? All right, so here's a little update for your boy. Apologies for last week, but it's just kind of the way it went down. And it's funny how uh this happens. Hello to Saruti. Happy holidays for everything that you celebrate. Celebrating life every day, I imagine. Yeah, I'm just, you know, celebratory 365 days a year, really. Yeah. What's the worst mood you've been in that, since I've known you?
1: Uh, What's the worst day you've had? I don't even know what it would be. It's probably like when Roma is playing pretty poorly, which is like right now. Uh, but. Tell me about it. I mean, I don't know. How about don't, that transfer? Terrible. I mean, the the window's open now. A lot of big deal. A lot of bit. I had a guy actually that wanted us to break down the pool stick to Chelsea, uh. Transfer. From Dortmund? Yeah, from from BBB.
0: But then he was back on loan. So, yeah, yeah, how does that he, work?
1: Well, essentially because they don't want to lose him because they're in first place in the German league right now. So, so yeah. and he's not a starter, but he is the you know he he plays for them a decent amount, and they don't want to lose him because they're fighting off fire in Munich. So okay, this happens all the time where they're like okay, well especially with Chelsea, Chelsea has about forty guys on loan. Their their roster is ridiculous, but I think it's a good move for Pulisic. I do. I believe the the system in Chelsea and the coach would be a good thing for him.
0: Wouldn't it be great if a team could just pay Duke thirty million dollars for Zion Williamson and then give him back when March Madness starts?
1: Yeah, but we would hate that because there's no parity, right?
0: I'm just trying to think of the transfer thing because I really feel like soccer's – it's much like that first couple of weeks in the lead-up to, like, all the stuff that's going to happen with Anthony Davis or Durant in the past or LeBron where uh, you guys think we have it fun in the NBA. The transfer season in international soccer is awesome, but I don't know anything about it. I just know just that – They just make
1: like, stuff up. Like, literally, they just make stories up. And the tabloids are – like, the tabloids – like, I, I think I said this on a previous pod. Literally, like, if – like you know, Meghan Markle
0: wanting out. I saw that on the cover of yeah, magazine it, yesterday honestly, saying, yeah, Meghan like, Markle, I want my old
1: life back. Exactly. It's National Enquirer, like all over, but for sports, it'll be like, hey, so and so's girlfriend was in London. Like, you know, this guy at Arsenal confirmed, even though there's absolutely no evidence of that other than his girlfriend being in the city of London, which is a major metropolitan area. <laughs>
0: so is it kind of like. Well Orlando brought in Glenn Davis and Dwight Howard loves Glenn Davis, so he'll stay in Orlando. Well, with, it's worse. it's much worse
1: it's it's much, much worse. And there are, there are publications that are a complete joke and they're ones that you take seriously but nobody really cares. and Twitter's a disaster with it too. but it is somewhat fun. To it's see fun others. though I it's, mean it's, it's it's all kind of fun. It's fun, but it's never realistic, right like half like I would say 80% percent of the stories have absolutely no truth to them whatsoever.
0: So here's the deal. We're going to talk to Jeff Van Gundy for about 30 minutes. We're going to do five questions with him. We're going to talk about the younger players, what he do with Harden, um, try to get a little story time out of him, Oakley versus everyone, and then we're going to do a surprise for Van Gundy. Um, I'm not going to give it away. It's not the craziest thing we've ever done on the podcast. We're going to do that. So we'll do that a little bit later. I'm a little under the weather. I don't know. You probably can tell uh, from the voice, and it's not – anything fun it's not because of new year's eve or anything like that it's the earliest i've ever gone to bed for new year's eve by the way but i went into scottsdale for the fiesta bowl shout out to the fiesta bowl and playstation for uh hooking me up and i was on the sideline for kickoff and then you know went up and sat in the stands and it was the most un weather ever it was so cold 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 Really cold. Rainy, cold. There was snow apparently in the mountains five miles outside of where LSU was practicing. And it was just freezing the whole time. And then where I stayed, it was it was kind of like you had to walk through it. And then, of course, I worked out late at night and then went for a run back to the place. And it was stupid. So now I'm all right. I'm going to power through this. You know, a lot of green juice, a lot of lemon, a lot of ginger. Chop shop, Scottsdale, and a shout out to Scottsdale for your gemstones, your handcrafted leather goods, your copper rounds and silver rounds. I wasn't able to check out all the places, but I hope to next time, um, get a, get a closer look at your wares. So, uh, I don't really know where I want to start. Do I start with that fiesta bowl? Cause there wasn't a ton to it. I guess I could do a little on that. I want to do a little on Anthony Davis and a little on Antonio Brown. So I have a few different things. So let me try to do this as fast as I can. But yet, not too fast. I don't think LSU-UCF was close. I know it's a one-score game, but it's it's a lot like politics. If you're an anti-SEC guy or you're a pro-UCF, hey, here's my national championship shirt, which I still think is kind of funny but also trollish and annoying. But again, if Alabama has five national championships that don't really count, and they do – that they just claimed. And I guess UCF can do it too, but I think in the modern era, you're kind of like, what, what is this? But I was at the game and UCF gets, gets a great drive for the touchdown, the pick six, they're 14 three. And you're like, wow, okay, this is, this is happening. And watching UCF warm up before, like I'm telling you, when you look at their offensive line, specifically their offensive line, you're like, these guys are huge. Like they're big dudes. Like you know what it says in a roster, but it's just different kind of watching them and you go, all right, you know, they have the bodies and then, Going into the game, LSU was on their fourth corner, who was a senior who had played some safety, and by the end of the game, they'd lost like two other guys. They had linebackers playing outside in coverage, but... You know, From what I saw, I just saw a team that was better than, than UCF. So I think there are one-score games that are one-score games that are truly one-score games, and there are other games that aren't one-score games, and I don't think that's what it was. Time of possession can be overrated. In this game, it was 45 minutes for LSU, 15 minutes for UCF. LSU could do whatever they wanted. Joe Burrow almost threw for 400 yards, which is crazy, and they couldn't block Lawrence 90 for LSU and a bunch of other guys. So even though it's the backup quarterback for UCF, which is... Brutal because it's not Mackenzie Milton back there who's really, really good. So I don't know what it proved. I don't know what any of this bull stuff proved. I just know that in one-score games, some are truly ones. Like Iowa-Mississippi State was a true one-score game. I don't feel like LSU-UCF was. If you hate the SEC, then you're going to go with the UCF thing. I sat in front of a guy who was Danny Cannell's spirit animal. I mean, just the worst. He had to be wasted right out of the gates hillbillies send them back to baton who you you sec losers i don't know if he recognized me or not and then he started in on the espn thing oh you guys kill him these guys are soft ucf like when they were up 14-3 he was losing his mind and it wasn't even as much as he was cheering for ucf he was cheering against everything that we've all been arguing about here for years and it was crazy. Then, obviously, either he went too hard, so it's really hard to maintain that. If you're that drunk in the beginning of a game, you know you got to be kind of special. And, and I'll tell you right now, Louisiana breeds those people. I don't know if the greater Orlando area does as well. It's a little new money-ish with UCF, but then again, if I were a UCF guy, I'd be like, ah, whatever, screw it. I'm just going to keep saying my team's the best and all this different stuff. So it didn't prove that UCF didn't belong. But I don't know that it proved that it did either. That's kind of how I feel about the whole bowl thing. Like Ohio State-Washington, did you feel like that was a one-score game? I mean, it was, but was it? Would you pick Washington to be able to beat Ohio State tomorrow if they played again? No way. Like, I wouldn't pick UCF against LSU if they played again. I wouldn't pick, I mean, the Texas-Georgia one is weird, but that wasn't a one-score game. Texas dominated Georgia that whole time. Um. You know, Bama, Oklahoma ends up being an eleven point game where some people try to act like at the end, but I don't know, I feel like Oklahoma got back into that game because Alabama was bored. They went the boredom strategy be like, Okay, we're gonna get down twenty eight nothing and they'll be so bored, then we'll be able to start moving the football. When they were both hyped and like the game was still the game and in the balance, that game wasn't even close. Like that was disgusting. The domination that we saw from Alabama. So I do think that you know, look, I think there are one-score games at the end of it. Like a few years from now, somebody will go, oh yeah, UCF. They played pretty competitive against LSU. Did they? You know, did Washington? No. You know, and I don't, I don't know. You know, we went into it saying, okay, I think the SEC is the best conference. I still do, but it's is it overwhelming? I mean, it depends on which side of the argument you want to believe in, right? Because again, none of us ever want to change our minds about anything. Bama, Florida, LSU, Kentucky for the top five win. Their bowl games, Georgia, you know, again, one score, sure, but Texas dominated them, beat them up. Mississippi State loses a one-score game. A&M wins a close one. Uh, actually, it ended up not being close. It was it was close early on against NC State. Um, Mizzou, I don't know what that coach is up to. They lose their game. Okay, all right, whatever. Big 12's big on this. Hey, look at Baylor. Baylor outgaining Vandy versus their average Oklahoma State against Mizzou, Texas, Georgia. And then they're even using the Oklahoma yardage and scoring against Bama as a win in there too. But they feel like, hey, we need to get our propaganda out there. The Big Ten with Ohio State winning. You know, Ohio State probably is one of the teams that could play with anybody talent-wise. I think we've always known that, but we just knew something was a little off and you just heard all these rumblings that things were off about that team and about where they were at and too one-dimensional. And, you know, this doesn't turn into... Like, what I don't like is the... Oh, see, Georgia shouldn't have been in it. I didn't have Georgia in it the first time because they had the two losses, okay? But now does this mean that they stunk? You know, I don't know. Like, a lot of this stuff that I do, I'm willing to tell you, you know, I don't know what was really proven in all this. I I think a lot of it stayed the same. Uh, Michigan gets destroyed. Penn State loses to Kentucky. Northwestern comes back and wins against Utah. You know, I'll give Greeny some credit here because Greeny made a good point like, as much as we probably overhype the bowl stuff, which we do, like, oh, the bowl means this. No, the bowl results mean this. Or, you know, if the SEC had won their top eight bowl games, which was Mississippi State could have won, Georgia wasn't, Missouri could have won, Uh if that had happened, you know, if we're starting to look at like a 7-1 record or something like that, does it go, oh, this, this absolutely proves it? I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I guess... I, I, you know, like any of this stuff, I already kind of have my mind made up, and it's it's just hard for me to change it one way or the other based on the bowl results anyway. But if you had the Big Ten West with Northwestern coming back and beating Utah, Wisconsin beating Miami, Iowa beating Mississippi State, which is a ranked SEC team, and... You know, look, Minnesota won their game against Georgia Tech and, and they trounced him. You know, I'm not a huge PJ Fleck guy cause he has three sayings now. Like if you're going to sign off on one thing, row the boat, you know, go Hawks, Russell Wilson's one, Brett Bielema on Wisconsin, or he'd say, woo Pig, You can't have three. PJ Fleck has three. Like the whole thing is, it's, uh, it's like the epilogue to a book. When he says goodbye now, it's just, it's just too many sayings. There's too many things going on and they won their bowl game. And then I had people like, cause I was, they, the camera was on PJ Fleck way too much in that game and he becomes a story. And then, you know, I said, Oh no, you know, I was sarcastic, like show PJ Fleck more. And then dudes are like, well, whatever. He's annoying, but man, he can coach. He went seven and six. All right. So we'll see. We'll see about that one. But Greeny's like, Hey, for all the people that hate the Big Ten West, they went four and one in the bowl games and it may not matter. But what would you be saying if they went one and four? You'd be like, Yep. See, they stink. And that's, that's a really good point. It's a really good point. And the thing is like, okay, Georgia Tech, whatever, but in Miami, you could say at the end, but you know, Northwestern coming back and beating Utah is impressive. It's impressive. Utah was really good defensively this year. They're a top 25 team. They were 17th in the, in the, uh, college football playoff rankings that game. So. If you are one to go, all right, we have 12, 13 games of these teams, and I feel this way, and now my mind's completely changed because of the Bulls, like I think over the accumulation of, hey, how have these conferences done in their non-conference games over a five-year stretch, three-year stretch, uh that that means a little bit more to me, but there isn't really that much that's changed. But the other thing, Saruti, and you can help me out on this one, is I'm really surprised now, in just a few years of doing the playoff, that based on the results, we go, oh, well, this proves... We don't need four anymore because of what Clemson and Alabama did, we only need two. But like you really want to do that? Like I'm not sold on 8 cuz I still think that means you're going to like to prove what? Like this didn't prove that we need 8, but it, it certainly doesn't prove that we should go from 4 to 2 and I saw all all sorts of stuff. Like I would look at it this way. Hey, we had a set of results this year. That proved kind of what we always thought all year that Alabama and Clemson were better than everybody else and now they're going to play again. And if you have fatigue from that, that's fine. I get it. You're selfish. You're mad your team isn't in it. I saw some pro athletes saying if the fourth year in a row you have these teams and something's wrong with the system, what system would you prefer? Non-deserving teams playing for a national title that Alabama and Clemson should have to play one extra game against an even more inferior opponent in the first round and then play those two games to meet up again. That doesn't make any sense. So how How about we do this? How about we do the big picture thing? And we go, this year we had results that prove that two teams are better than everybody else, which confirmed kind of what we always thought. And that maybe next year we'll have different results where the games will be competitive and we'll think maybe we should have eight. Like, I just, in the in the moment reaction of let's reorganize the entire thing. Like, I never was a big reseed 1 through 16 in the NBA break up the Eastern West, Western Conference thing. But when it's happened for 15 years, like, I'm more open to it now. But you have this Clemson, Alabama result where it's like, ah, oh, here we go again. Like, this is a few years of the college football playoff. In some years, they'll feel like there's six teams that deserve to be in. Some years, it'll feel like it's two. Some years, the games will be competitive. Other years, it won't be. Clemson wasn't competitive in their game. Ohio State wasn't competitive in one of their games a couple years ago. But you don't just write these teams off. Like, as disappointing as Notre Dame was... I don't think you get to say, oh, let's put Georgia in there, and this thing was stupid because Georgia had the second loss. I have, I don't know understand how people have lost track of this. I've never argued for a two-loss Georgia to be in the playoff, even if I would pick them in a neutral field against Notre Dame. Wins have to matter at some point, and it's not UCF, but Notre Dame's schedule has to mean something as disappointing as that result was because they got smoked. And at the same time, like, you can't go, oh, Notre Dame sucks, put Georgia in. Oh, wait a minute, now Georgia sucks, so I guess now Ohio State should have been in. Like, I just, I know that's what happens, but I'm really surprised. And I'm not just talking about randos here. I'm talking about people that I respect going, oh, this whole thing is is so dumb. And then Cannell got himself caught up in, like, this weird thing where he's like, yep, here we go again. (laughs) Proves we need eight. And Staples is like, what do you mean, eight? Like, you just... You just said, like, the thing for Canel that was brutal is that he thinks LSU sucks all year long, and then they beat his beloved UCF Knights, and then he's like, yep, UCF belongs. You're like, wait a minute, you told me LSU sucks all year. So that was a theme after the Bulls that I, I wouldn't even call it frustrated. I just go, how do you guys see the world this way that because of the 2018-19 results, that now it should be completely revamped?
1: Yeah, I thought there were a lot of people saying, you know, oh, tough, you know, tough bowl season for the eighteen playoff crowd. I looked at it the opposite. I think it proved the point of why there should be an eighteen playoff because I I just don't like Georgia losing to Texas. That 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 doesn't matter to me. Like I think Georgia was a really good team, and I I, I think to prevent some of these blowouts that we're seeing, like you know, in both of the semifinal games. Give, give Ohio State and Georgia a chance to play. So in that, in that scenario, you'd probably have Georgia playing, what, Oklahoma? Maybe Georgia wins that game. Maybe you don't see a blowout against Alabama in the next game. And I'm, I'm assuming Ohio State probably beats, um, probably beats Notre Dame. So that's probably not going to be a blowout in the other semifinal matchup. I think this helps improve. And we, at the end of the day, we just see the best teams go through. Cause right now, I think the four team, like, nobody thought Notre Dame was this, was good enough. I just don't, they were undefeated. That's great. Awesome. And I don't, I don't, I don't think they should have been left out, but nobody thought they were good enough. And this is what happens. You don't get the four best teams in. Whereas I think if you go to eight, you have a better chance of having better and more competitive games later in the process.
0: Okay. But I just don't understand why Alabama has to play UCF or Washington to then prove what we already knew. You know, why does Clemson have to play Michigan again? Like what, what told you? What and again, UCF's without Milton. So to be fair here, you have to look at him, you know. But he was still not going to play if they were in the playoff because he got hurt at the end of the year. But you know, Michigan got smoked in that game, man. Smoked.
1: They were, they were down a ton of starters too, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What they were. Was, and it probably wasn't a great look that you they were just get destroyed by Florida. But
0: now they were missing all their their linebacker and edge guys, like that combo of dudes. So. Maybe that changes, but you know, then I would wonder, would you have more and more guys deciding to bounce on all that? So anyway, those are my bull thoughts. I want to do a little on Antonio Brown because of all of the Steelers stuff. So he's going off. This whole free will thing, like easy Getty Lee, but his post about free will, he called Ryan Clark and Uncle Tom. Um he posted another video where he's, he just, just kind of gone off. And if you don't know the story is leading up to the final week and it actually gone on before the Saints game, I guess, but he went AWOL the week before, got into it with Roethlisberger. All accounts are saying that Roethlisberger, like he and M went at it, but that Brown was in the wrong. And it's always tough for this because if you have enough public equity, that's again, well, I guess you shouldn't call it public equity, but if you have enough public opinion that's anti you and Brown's offered up enough of this stuff to go, okay, I don't know if I want to believe in this guy anymore, then the people are going to turn on you. They're going to take the other guy's side. I don't want to take anybody's side. I don't want to take Roethlisberger's side. I don't, and I don't understand this other thing that turns into like, why does everybody always back Big Ben? Why does Big Ben always get it pass? Who likes Big Ben? Nobody likes Big Ben. I don't like Antonio Brown. I don't like Le'Veon Bell. I don't like any of these guys. I don't even think Mike Tomlin's that great. OK, like collectively, as I've said before, as I said at the very beginning of the season, I go, this team has so much drama that I actually feel bad for Steelers fans because they're great fans and they have to deal with all this stuff. And this incredibly talented team that's not in the playoffs, like I do think Minnesota is the most disappointing team because I feel like the AFC somehow at the beginning of the year, that felt like there was no depth became better. Um. Then, then the NFC did. Like when I look at some of the NFC playoff teams, I go, you know what? I think I like the bottom of the AFC better now, which is really weird because in August it didn't feel like that was even a possibility, but hey, welcome to the NFL. But whether it's Ben embellishing every injury or just doing this kind of like fake I'm in charge thing when he's like doing this weird leader deal. Like he's a terrific quarterback. He's going to be a Hall of Famer despite what Cam Jordan said, okay? Uh, I'm not even to have to go into the other stuff that was even weirder and worse about the allegations against him. I don't even, you know, that's not something that I'm going to use against him now because I just, I feel like we're talking football here and I don't want to turn into that kind of conversation. Whether he called out... His own offensive coordinator numerous times. That play against the Patriots when they didn't have a second play called or he wasn't ready or wasn't prepared. The Jesse James catch that probably should have been a touchdown and they changed the rule for it. And Roethlisberger goes on a radio show and calls out his staff on the sideline. It's like, Hey, Ben, that was also on you too. Or when Mason Rudolph gets drafted and he's like, I'm not going to help him. And he got all weird about that. I'm like being criticizing Antonio Brown doesn't automatically put you in the pro Ben category. So there's a lot of media members that keep doing this. Oh, it's, it's interesting how Ben Roethlisberger gets a pass. I don't, who's defending Ben? And again, I don't want to defend any of these dudes. Brown has proven time and time again that he's, he's about himself. He's so about himself. And Ryan Clark, who played with him at Pittsburgh, analyst for us, came on our show years ago and called this and said, Brown has all of you fooled and he comes on first take and he, Goes out there and he's fun. He's, look, he knows how to play the game. Almost all these guys know how to play the game, but this free will thing, and I never know what the right line is. I don't know, I don't know if Belichick brainwashed is a lot of fun because it isn't, but then this, this momentum that I'm, I'm my own, it's not even Antonio Brown. It's like I'm my own person. No man can decide for me. You know what, man? That's awesome, but most all of us in life, even special people at times have to answer to somebody. And if you're on a team, you're going to have to answer to somebody at some point. If you don't want to, then do something else. And so as special as Antonio Brown is, or the 15 to 20 quarterbacks in the world that can actually do this job, and the position's never been deeper, so maybe it's more than 20, those are really special people, but ultimately you have to decide. And if you're Brown going, you know, I can't let no man do that and all this stuff, you just go, all right, that's cool, man, but... It doesn't really work. Like you're not, you're not living in reality. Like that's not, you know, between the Belichick, hey, don't be a free thinker at all and Antonio Brown, I don't know what the perfect line is there, what that perfect line of balance is. I know which one's more successful. And for anybody that is accusing the media of sticking up for Roethlisberger, I would offer this up. At least he showed up to work. Okay. He didn't sit out the entire year and you know, he didn't, he didn't put himself in a position where the team had to make a decision for him that hurt the team and said to Ben, don't show up. I don't like Ben Rothersberger, okay? I've said it all the time. I'm, I don't want to take a side on anything. But if we're just putting it all out there, he was ready to go to work week 17. The other guys weren't. I, you know what this reminds me of? I was on the flight last night, okay? And, um, upgraded to first class. I don't pay for first class on my own. And I'm sitting there, and we got delayed all day, leaving Phoenix, heading back to L.A. And it was one of those delays where you knew it was just going to be a disaster. And on the way over, we got delayed, and I thought it was great. The pilot's like, look, we don't have our paperwork in. This is 15, 20 minutes tops. And I'm like, ah, here we go. And he was right on it. He told us how long it was going to be, and it was fine. And on the way out, they didn't tell us anything. We sat there you know, the tarmac for an hour or so. And it, yeah, look, it sucked. It, it's always sucks. And, and it's always the inconvenience to us. Uh, I don't like it. As I pointed out numerous times, the pilots just constantly lie. They're just tell me, hey, we're going to be here a while. It's going to suck. But they don't want to do that. Their way of managing anxiety and stressed out people is to lie in increments to you. So that somehow... And I always feel like sometimes managers do that. And you're just like, just tell me the bad news collectively all at once. And just stop giving it to me. Like, this isn't layaway of bad news. Just tell me so that way, as mad as I am now, I'll know the truth as opposed to being more mad and upset about things later on. But pilots and the airlines will look at it that way. So I can understand being a little annoyed. I'm sitting there. I'm reading my book. It's fine. The flight was less than an hour. So I'm like, whatever. I'll, I'll get home when I get home. And this foreign guy got up and... He, as we landed, he started demanding an apology. So I don't know if he's a first class rich guy or one of those things. You know, look, I'm sitting there in sweatpants, so people probably thought I was a DJ. But he's he's up and he goes, I, you know, and he's got a full blown accent, tall, older white guy, really old. He goes, "I demand an apology. I have an international flight. This is unacceptable." On and on and on, on and on. Okay, all right. So he's he's doing that deal. And everybody's looking at them. And I'll tell you right now, like in this world of acceptance and everybody's all these, you know, all, all the things that we're striving for, tell me you're not judgmental of the foreign person, male, female, any white person of color, like any, anything you can think of. Tell me in your honest moments when that person's doing that, how accepting you are. Because you're probably like, Hey, Fritz, keep it moving. And so this dude, who actually may have been a DJ, full-blown kind of gray hair, like Japanese, you look like Cloud Strife a little bit, Um, Final Fantasy reference for those who don't get it, anime, whatever you want to do. He's got like that kind of gray washed-out hairdo and, you know, super fun jeans, not entry-level jeans. They're the jeans you buy, it's the second pair of jeans you buy after you buy the first ones that aren't cool enough. And as this old guy's demanding the apology, DJ guy's like, nah, man, they don't deserve, you don't deserve anything. I'm like, whoa, here we go. Here we go. Yeah, he said it to him. He's like, nah, you don't need anything. And then Fritz is like, what? What? And he goes, it's a new year, man. Calm down. So now I'm like, wait a minute. I think I hate both guys now. I don't want to take either guy's side. Like Fritz, like I get his frustration, but hey, guess what? They're not going to apologize. It happens. Welcome to travel. But then the whole Zen DJ, hey man, it's a new year. So he was like going to kind of shout him down and then just did this whole like, it was a real diss. It was a real heavy diss and Fritz was, Fritz was beside himself. So now he was mad at the DJ guy and I looked at both and I said, I don't. I don't want to, I don't want to be team either of you. And that's how
1: I feel about the Steelers. You know, so have you read what this all stems from, right? Apparently.
0: What, the Antonio Brown deal?
1: Yes. Well, yeah, I've read, I've read all of it. I mean, I know he was
0: on the mysterious, the mass singer thing, which I did watch. Um, but that was team. The
1: Schuster thing is what I'm talking about. Oh, what? With Juju being the guy? Winning team MVP.
0: Oh, <laughs> apparently that now
1: because Roethlisberger was on, you know, in the local station. I think it's 93 7, the fan. He, you know, they asked him, Hey, were you upset that you didn't win team MVP? Because there had been rumors that this was what created this whole issue. And obviously, Juju Smith is not the team MVP. But the fact that if, if, if Brown or Roethlisberger got that upset about who wins the team MVP award, then that tells you everything you need to know about those two, right?
0: Yeah, I think there are real indicators here and the Steelers have been more forthcoming than any team I can remember and how they feel about other teammates like the Le'Veon Bell stuff you know I think Ben can be right in saying it's a distraction but at the same time like at one point their record was really good and then
1: yeah seven, they were one
0: yeah they were seven two, and one and then and things fall apart so you're like wait a minute so you became more distracted after the fact that doesn't make any sense and the fact that all those offensive linemen were that mad at Le'Veon Bell that never happens the beginning of the year, that Jesse James at tight ends, like, we're the Kardashians. Like, they, they said that. Um, and that Juju wins. I, I think you're right. I think it's a great point by you that it kind of tells us that there's a lot of dudes in that locker room that can't stand any of those guys. Why would you? Why would you be able to stand? And then the rest of these dudes, Jamal Adams of the Jets, I like guess greatest, he's nasty. He is in on everything, but he can't help himself on social media and all these dudes, George Kittle, same deal with San Francisco. Where it's like, hey, A B, Antonio Brown is the hot girl that your friend breaks up with that you tell I would treat you so much better than he did, or your friend, you know, maybe you're just sketchy as hell, and your friend's having some problems with her, and then you're going up to her on the side, being like, I would never treat you this way. I can't believe what he's doing. If I ever like, I, I love when girls tell me, and they'll be dating somebody, and then it would happen sometimes, like if it was somebody at work. Like oh I went out to dinner and you know with so and so and they said they can't believe that so and so treats me this way I'm like, (laughs) I go you know that's not an observation that is a that is a sort of invite to be like you know if you were single and we started dating and here's the thing is that all those other dudes around the NFL that are sitting there hitting on Antonio Brown right now they don't actually know what it's like to date him so of course he may be the best receiver in the NFL he is incredible nobody is doubting any of that stuff but. At, at what point – like, the Uncle Tom thing is so crappy. It's such an awful – like, Ryan Clark has a job, and his job now as an analyst is to give us insight. And thank God for Ryan Clark for actually giving us insight, as opposed to so many other athletes and coaches. We've had NBA coaches work at ESPN, where I would, after a month, go to you – and you know this, Saruti. I'd say, hey, never, no more with him. Never again. <laughs> if he's on the list and he's available, it's always a no. Because I don't want to talk to that person anymore. They have nothing to offer up, and all they care about is their next NBA job. And they sat here and they got a check from ESPN, and this sucks for all of us because the person's useless. And it's happened with former athletes. With former athletes, you're like, you know, the comeback's never happening. Like it's okay to give us some insight. So if you're giving us insight in Antonio Brown, who's super difficult, who we've known this, okay, it's this is this is documented. And Clark gives us more insight about it as a former teammate. Clark, thank God, is doing his job and doing it the right way doesn't make an Uncle tom it doesn't make him a snitch you know what it makes him is a really good analyst and one of the rare ones i think that's willing to give us enough stuff and be able to make it all work out so that he's you know it's 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 the job i wish more people were ryan clark is my whole point before we get to jeffy Van gundy i want to do just a couple minutes on anthony davis I've been told by two league sources that he's not going to play for the pelicans after this year okay that is not actually the newest stuff here but to keep hearing it from the people that I'm hearing it from just all right. So everybody get ready. Davis, as he did the other night when asked about his future, shot it down much like KG, the comp that I've used in the past. He's not going to be that guy. That's going to rock the boat. He's not going to do the mellow, get me out of here thing. I don't know if clutch sports, rich Paul, those guys would do that, that's not really their MO, but they may have to, I don't know if it's going to be a relative. I thought maybe at this point, there'd be a relative that already would be vocal about this and start pushing to get him out of there. Um, I don't, you know, as Cerruti as and I brought up, but Cerruti made that great point last time we talked about this. It was like, why would you go with Clutch and then tell Clutch, actually, no thanks, I don't want to go to LeBron and the Lakers. I want to go to Kyrie and Boston, the place you'd least want me to go. But really this game becomes about if other teams get involved and say, screw it and give up the assets to the Pelicans knowing, okay, can we really wait? for the Celtics to get out of the Kyrie contract so that they could trade for him and offer up what we need so we have another bidder. The Pelicans, the most important thing for the Pelicans now isn't offering Anthony Davis 239000000 million, isn't having him ride out next season as well and threatening him with that, even though he, maybe you'll do that if you're dealt Demps, so you think you're going to get fired anyway. Um It's about having two bidders. You have to have the second bidder, and of course you'd want more than that. You can't let this be dictated as strictly a Lakers transition, or a transaction is the best way I should say it. And if that happens, they're going to be even more screwed than they already are. But I'm kind of waiting for, I don't know if it will be the dad or somebody else that goes, he wants out, he needs to get out of here uh, because he's not going to do it. And until he does it, unless he makes it really difficult and the Pelicans kind of, kind of ride this whole thing out. But then you got to worry about the Celtics and those assets, which you'd be looking at after this year's draft, which, you know, can get really dicey. So yeah, just more and more people around it confirming, I think what we already knew that he's, um, he's not going to be a Pelican after this year with one year left on the deal. Here is Jeff Van Gundy. I was kidding around on, on Twitter the other night, Jeff, that I demand you answer for your Georgia should be in the playoff, um, picture. The final playoff thing. So I, I just after the loss, do you do you regret being so strong in your endorsement of them on the NBA broadcast?
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> did you see the other two teams play in those games?
0: I did. Notre Dame did. and
2: Oklahoma, yeah. Georgia's second team should have been in the playoff. Now they played terrible against Texas. Their their disappointment with being excluded, uh, you know shown through and texas give texas credit they played great georgia was awful but there's no way georgia didn't belong in that playoff
0: i would agree that there's there's a argument you made they're one of the four best part of that but I, I just my thing with this and you know i've covered it a long time in travel is just that eventually like a loss has to kind of matter so you can be better vegas can have you favored over everybody other than alabama but I don't know. When when you just have that second loss, it's it's hard for me to look past that even if I think you're better. So that's where I kind of agreed with the committee on that one.
2: Well, yeah, losing matters, but who you play matters. So if you schedule down and you have bad teams on your on your schedule and you don't challenge yourself, then yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have a better chance to win. But losing at L S. U and losing to Alabama late like you have to use your eyes, this one loss, two loss team. The, the whole thing is you're you're going to encourage these teams to schedule lousy. And, you know, if it's going to be, oh, you can't have a second loss and be in the playoff. It's to me, the whole formula is broken. If you just don't look at who's better. And Georgia clearly, clearly was one of the four best teams. And, you know, unfortunately they didn't get in and then, it had an impact on them, uh, playing poorly in a bowl game. And, you know, some people will go backwards and try to say, well, that proves they didn't belong. That doesn't prove anything. That proves that Texas killed them on that night, but they still belonged in the playoff.
0: I uh, always enjoy the broadcast, especially when you do that kind of stuff. Um, if it's a blowout game, I think you guys almost have turned it into a podcast at times, which I actually really enjoy. Uh, I want to get to something that we've done on this podcast a lot with younger players, and you could probably put Wiggins in this group. Um I think there's times with Ben Simmons, despite the overall numbers, and he had great numbers the other night against Phoenix. Uh, there's some other guys, Brandon Ingram out here, where – I worry about younger players that I I think, and you probably would disagree, like we get so excited about what they could possibly be that we probably overshoot what their actual ceiling is. Where are you with younger players, kind of in that second or third year, that are supposed to be superstars? And maybe that's our fault for putting that expectation on them and realizing, you know what, there just hasn't been that level. Like, how are you with younger players that maybe we start to worry about too soon?
2: No, I don't think you worry too soon about younger players. I I think... The thing that I think is a bigger concern is that because the offensive numbers have skyrocketed in our game, uh, people's individual stats are up. And so we start assigning, oh, he's a great player, to these accumulator accumulation of stats and these accumulator of stats. Oh, he had a triple-double or he had did this or did that. If you don't drive winning, you're not a great player. So I don't care what your stats say. If you can't take stats and translate that into winning, you're not a great player. You may be a a stat accumulator. You may be a very talented player. And so, you know, Ben Simmons, he's driven winning. He and Uh, Embiid. Wiggins hasn't driven winning. Towns hasn't driven winning. Um, you know, they're very good. Towns, particularly offensively, is very good. But there's a defensive component, there's an uplifting of others uh, component to leadership through your effort and your energy. There's, you know, and, and what we see in a lot of young players is they can put up numbers, but they lose. And so somehow they've got to figure out how they can put up numbers and win.
0: What would you say to those guys? Because, I mean, here's Tibbs, somebody you've known a long time, as good as it gets defensively, and it just doesn't seem to get through to Wiggins and Towns. What would you do with those guys?
2: Well, forgetting them in particular, like just particular, um, because I don't want to make it about them because there's a lot of other guys who are just like them that haven't found their way to winning. I think the number one thing, if you think you can talk someone into energy and effort, You're delusional. Like, either you have that component to you, uh, through your years of upbringing and being coached by different people, or you don't. You can learn a lot of things in the NBA. You don't learn competitive spirit. You don't learn toughness. Uh, you have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, it takes, uh, it takes courage. But you've got to move on and find a best player that does embody those characteristics, or you've got to surround those pl- that player, that best player, with guys who stand for all the right things. And I, I look back at like an Allen Iverson, was such a great talent, uh, but you know maybe you know didn't embrace practice or some of the things that maybe Larry Brown thought was important to winning. But what he surrounded him with was all these tough guys in Tyrone Hill, uh, Eric Snow, Aaron McKee. Um, So as an organization, uh, if you you have this talent that you're trying to build around, you've either got to determine whether he has the winning characteristics, which Iverson certainly did. Um, You've got to determine if he does. If he doesn't, you've got to move on and try to find another best player. And if he does have those, you've got to try to figure out how you can best complement his talents uh, with others that mesh and match what's needed. Because I go back to this whole, you know, Belichick thing. You're not accumulating talent. You're trying to build a team.
0: Harden's been on this absolute tear. And I, you know, have nights where I go, I cannot believe the shot-making I don't really know what you do because his handle is so tight. The vision has always been there, you know, as an underrated passer that, that feels like he's this isolation scorer because of the way they set things up. But I thought you made a really good point about offensive numbers is that if you look at pace and where we're at from just even 10 years ago and how many threes people are taking, the numbers are staggering, but there's still moments where I'm, I'm not sure. How would you handle having to go up against him? What you tell your players. And ultimately, like, how frustrated maybe you'd get with the officials, especially in a night where he took 28 free throws.
2: So I think, you know, defense, it's all relative, right? Numbers are soaring, but defense still has great importance. And I think with a great player, um, I think you still have to take away something. You can't give a great player everything. So the one thing that you can't do anything about is when he's isolating – He's going to get his step-back three. If he wants a step-back three, he's going to get a step-back three. There's nothing you can do from him taking that shot. So there's two things, I think, with him. You've got to then determine what you can take away. And if you're disciplined, he doesn't have to be at the free-throw line. All right? You can, and we've seen San Antonio in the past play him, you can take away his free-throw attempts. And so that would be the number one thing I would concentrate on. But secondarily, the switch everything mentality that the NBA, a lot of teams have gone to, you put a center on James Harden, you have no chance. No chance. He's by that guy. He's going to foul him. And even if he misses at the rim, Capella's there to clean it up. I I would trap James Harden on every pick and roll. I would never switch his pick and roll. I would trap him and make him beat you with the pass. If he wants to isolate, he can get his step back three. He's not getting to the free throw line. And if he runs a pick and roll, we are trapping him every single time, 48 minutes, make the other guys make plays and make shots.
0: What what I always like about the the broadcast, and something that I, you know, just as a guy who sits home and watches this every night and has seen how the game has evolved the way it's officiated, is that it's becoming more and more of a game of tricking the refs. And that, you know, whether it was the flop that, that started up years ago, the rip-through, which they've tried to correct, now sticking out your feet on the three, it drives me crazy when a defender runs into a screen and falls down, and just because he's a small guy, then he somehow gets the call as if it's a legal screen. There's plenty of illegal screens that you can call, but... I 'm surprised as great as silver is that like uh, all the officials and somebody they haven 't just sat down and gone there's certain guys like Kyle Lowry's going to fall down all the time and we keep rewarding him for this. Are you surprised that the league hasn 't gone? You know we just need to reset this whole thing because players are smart players know the more they do this, the more they call it, the more they 're going to keep doing it and as much as I love this game it's certain there's certain nights, Jeff, where I'm so incredibly frustrated, and i don 't blame the rest for it. I think I just blame the overall acceptance of this stuff, and I hate the direction that it's going.
2: Well, I think what's being overlooked with uh, the officiating crew is that, uh, number one, just like a team that go that cycles through many head coaches, uh, the head of the officials, they have turned that thing over like so much recently that there's been very little stability. And I think it's critical in any organization that you have – you find the right people, you empower them, and then they are allowed to do it over a number of years. So I'm hopeful now that, you know, Monty McCutcheon is in charge of the officials, Yeah, that he can be in this position for a long time so that he can get it the way he, he see, thinks it should be. Secondarily, we've lost a ton of great officials in the last decade and replaced them with a lot of young officials. And so, just like a rebuilding NBA team, uh, the officiating crew is being rebuilt. And I think they think it's going better than I do. Um, I, You know, I think if you ask the league office, they're happy with where they're at or encouraged where they're at. I'm not quite as high on that. Um, I, I think uh, it's going to take... More time than I think, you know, the NBA fan uh, understands to make it what it should be. As far as um, all the tricking of officials, I I think this is where we'd be much better old school, where the old school referee, um, if you tricked him and he went back and he looked at it, he was going to screw you. <laughs> and he was going to find a way where he could screw you or your team. And the same way with coaches who constantly whine and complain. But because today there's so much um emphasis on call getting, you know, being right that they can't sort of meet out this natural justice of trying to trick them. So I, I talk to Steve Jabby about this all the time, who's on our broadcast. Like, he wouldn't say he would screw him, but he would. But, like, <laughs> what they would do is, like he says all the time, if you if he knows a guy is trying to trick the ref, and he has tricked him, he's got to be ultra sure the next time a similar play happens that you truly were fouled. Almost giving the benefit of the doubt to the other party. And I totally agree with that like when a guy is tricking an official everybody says it's smart and i look at it totally different um to me you can look at it as it's smart or you can look at it as you're trying to get an unjust advantage and i think officials should have the power to if they see this guy is trying to trick him i don't care if it's a flop on a on a drive it's a verbal flop where you scream out like we see so many players do today or you just fall on screens like you're talking about you cannot reward that or you continue to encourage it and i got in this argument with mike green long ago about flopping if if you don't punish it tacitly you're encouraging it and so to me all these things um, and now the intentional foul and transition is one where a rule change has to be brought in where we don't encourage taking away exciting fast-break basketball by allowing teams just to intentionally foul. All of this, to me, ha- goes hand-in-hand hand with making the game the best it possibly can be.
0: Yeah, I, I look, I agree with that. I mean, Chris Paul, to me, has, should never have gotten a second call where in transition he stops on a dime and lets a big man run over him from behind. Like, once no. that call was called once, everybody should see, hey, you know what? Chris Paul just stops, and the big guy runs into him. It's not his fault. It's, it's in it's transition. A, it's like the other thing, Ryan. Never the call the it again, hate, you know?
2: The one I hate the most, uh, and it doesn't get done often in the NBA, but in college a little bit more, is a guy is on offense is running in transition down the middle of the floor, and he's looking back to the ball. And a guy steps in front of him. Oh, like. That should be like you get lined up and ten guys get to run you over, <laughs> right? No, yeah. It's like, like you got to call out the BS, ba- the, the non basketball plays, stopping like that, and then you know, I mean, like you're talking about with Chris Paul. Like, I don't blame him for doing that because hey, if if you're getting rewarded, they keep calling me, it. I I can't, I can't yeah, believe you're keep it. Doing like, it so. It-
0: if I'm at home seeing it over the years, how are the three guys with the whistles not going, hey, let's remember, Chris just stops and gets run over. No, so let's but not... it's not them. And they it's never do it. It's what they're
2: told to call. It's what they're know, told but... to call. So it goes bigger than that. It's 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 a layer above the actual game officials. My, my frustration is rarely with the game officials. It's what they're told to call that's frustrating to me. Like that should have been said, uh, memo sent. If you start up the floor and you stop, and a guy runs into you, we're not calling it. So you can fall over, you can do whatever you want. It's not a basketball play. And list every ba- non-basketball play that we're not calling.
0: I have a surprise for you at the end of this. So there's two other things that I want to get to. I want to get to five questions, and I want to ask you. Since it's been it's been 10 years since you've coached. I was going over the resume again last night. I still can't believe you got that Knicks job at 34. And I mean, to, to think of where I was at, at thirty-four, and to think, like, my God, were you scared to death?
2: Well, when you when you're an interim coach, right? First of all, you're caught off guard. You know, you get a knock on your door. You're just preparing for Philly. You're in charge of the scouts. So, right? Because Don Nelson you know, had only
0: been there that year after Pat, so he he was fired in his yeah. first year, right?
2: Right. So, and, and and this is where New York standards have changed. I say this all the time. Charles Oakley had been out, I think, six weeks. Think he'd been hurt. So our second most probably important player, next to Ewing, uh, had been out six weeks, and Don Nelson got fired, I believe, with a record of thirty-four and twenty-seven. That's that's how the standards were in New York for the Knicks at that time, right? So we had come off, you know, these Riley years where we were terrific. The next year, you know, Coach Nelson, he—I thought he did a really good job. And then they're saying, hey, 34 and 27 without your second best player. no." Nope. And so when I got the job, I think there was 21 games left. And, uh, you know, you're never ready to be a head coach in the NBA. Uh, and, you know, the the most important thing is having your best player give you a chance. And, and Ewing, uh, I'll be forever indebted to him and Oakley and Starks and those guys because uh, because of my experiences with them as an uh, uh, as an assistant, they gave me the chance to coach them. Uh, their being great players allowed me to make mistakes, and only I could notice it because we still won. And so, yeah, it's uh, you know I was very fortunate uh, to coach great players, and so much of success. I don't care what the sport is, we analyze these coaches. The number one predictor of success as a head coach is your roster, and that's it. It's all about your roster. There's a lot of coaches who lose in the NBA who are terrific coaches, but they have a bad roster, and there's a lot of guys who over time in this NBA have succeeded, and they're pretty good coaches, but they've been blessed with great rosters.
0: Okay, you ready for five questions before we get into the surprise here? It's going to be kind of rapid fire here, so um, hopefully you're nothing nothing too intense here. I think you'll be fine. The closest that you've come to coaching again?
2: Um, Yeah, I, I think the one thing I always try to do is stay away from that because, like, to me, uh, there are certain jobs I, Ryan and I have thought were good fits that other people didn't. You know, the people hiring didn't think I was the right fit. And there's others that I felt um, uh, weren't the right fit. But, you know, uh, the other teams thought I would be the right fit. So I don't think it does any good to actually say it. But it was a, it was a couple years back.
0: Okay. Fist fight. Oak versus Mason in their prime. Who wins?
2: Oak. Okay. Oak versus anyone by the way like you can name you can just keep listing players and I'm taking oak you know like he wasn't one of those guys who 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 fake fought who wanted someone to, the referees to step in no no you know if you wanted to challenge him he's fine he's going to finish you off and I'm going to be right behind him
0: do you love watching that video you help break up that fight
2: no no listen you I look like a fool and You know, again, this is where I go back to, like when Charles Oakley pulled me out of that, he was sort, he was smirking and laughing. But I was like, (laughs) you know, I think he pulled me up with like, you know, one finger, you know. So it's like those guys overlooked all that stuff, you know, all my mistakes, you know. So I I do understand why uh, people plead temporary insanity because I had no memory of that going out there. Uh, when i see the uh when i saw the film right after the game i'm like what did i do you know like and so you know you were in it those that's guys, how it, it, look yeah, that's what happened those guys yeah those guys made fun of me uh they, we we laughed about it um and thankfully they 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 were just incredibly loyal players like you you don't get those type of guys they don't come around often that are really good players and also you know, really, really loyal to you uh, as a coach. You don't see that as much anymore. Uh, I'm not sure why, but like Ewing, Oakley, Harper, Starks, um, Charlie Ward, all those guys, like incredibly loyal, hard-playing guys.
0: How long would a game to 11 take right now between you and your brother Stan?
2: Oh, it'd be over quick. It'd be over quick. Listen, I would challenge his lateral quickness and I would go buy him. It would be, listen, in the in the day, I never beat him growing up, but now I'd be undefeated.
0: Okay, It would it be quick. like
2: Curry versus, it'd be like Curry versus uh, a, a G League point guard. That's what it would be like now.
0: <laughs> What's the funniest thing, meanest thing, the most memorable thing that Jordan ever said to you during a game when you were on the sideline?
2: Well, it was... Uh, it was. Uh, I, I think I had said something about him being a con man on the radio uh, in Chicago, and we played him. Uh, like I had said it two weeks prior, but you know, this it wasn't a live interview, so that this guy held it until the day of the game. And so back then, at the old, well, at, at you know, in Chicago, you had to cross paths to the locker room, and I think he had like, I'm going to say they beat us eighty-eight, eighty-seven. In Chicago, And I think he had 50, either 50 or 51, something like that. And so as he walked by me, you know, he, he told me pretty explicitly uh, that I should shut up and uh, not comment anymore. The funny part about that was we immediately flew to Indiana. And we played not the next night, but the following night. So we weren't back to so back. We had a day off. So I went to this food court for dinner the following night. And it just so happens the whole team is there our whole team is there and they're sitting around eating and BSing and they called me over and and Stark said hey the next time you want to talk about another player please remember i had to guard him okay <laughs> so please shut up so uh, jordan said some bad things to me starks cursed me out just as much the next day
0: why did you call him a con man
2: uh well i i, I was trying to fire probably I should have picked my words a little bit better. It was uh, based on how I thought he um, befriended players and uh, softened them up. And uh, so I was trying to make the point to our team that we had to see through that and uh, challenge him like we would challenge most players in the NBA, be as physical with him as we were with other people. And I didn't think we always were.
0: Okay, before we say goodbye to you, Jeff, I want to introduce you to my friend. He is the co-creator of Chicago Fire, PD, Chicago Med, director, writer. Uh, he's not on the current seasons, but if you want to start about the origin, it's Michael Brandt. So I know you're a huge fan of the franchise, Jeff. So now you can ask Brandt any questions and say hello to each other about the series.
2: Hey, wow. This is like, this is like where I live. I, like, I love the show. <laughs>
3: What I happened, hear you talk about did it Chicago, on the air.
2: why did Chicago law not work
3: <laughs> Chicago it was Chicago Justice and if you ask me it didn't work because NBC was secretly did not want a fourth show that they dick
2: I like dick that show
3: though too much yeah it was good it was good and quite honestly there were way more shows with worse numbers that got canceled um, I think when NBC took a they they, they kind of gave in because they weren't sure how how their other shows were going to fare. Uh, they knew Justice was probably going to work, so they gave it a shot. It did work, but then their other shows worked, and then ultimately, if you ask me, it's, well, do we really want five Dick Wolf shows on the air? And so that one kind of got left behind, just too bad.
2: I'm going to say this. Chicago PD, they're all good. Chicago PD is by far the best. Hank Voigt, one of the great characters of all time he yeah, was evil that... and then he turns good and then he turns back to evil and I love that how he goes back and forth
3: you never know with him and and that was that's full Jason I mean Jason gets all the credit Jason Begay he if you remember I don't know if you watched Chicago Fire the first season but he was just kind of played a, a dirty tough cop in, in Chicago Fire just kind of a nemesis to oh Casey. yeah he was
2: he's harassing that guy uh the one guy, I forget who it was, but he was harassing yeah, Casey. him
3: yeah. He was harassing yeah. him because because Casey had something on his son, a drunk driving thing, and, and, and Boyd kind of made it go away. And so then he started harassing him. And that was just uh, a character that was so good and an actor playing it so well that really a whole other TV show just came out of it because he was so solid
0: just to be the moderator here, Jeff, did you have any other storyline questions? Because I, I know that there's, there's always a little, you know, you get that time in the hotel where you might be confused by past storylines.
2: No, no, no. The storylines, like, again, they're all good, but, like, Chicago PD for me is like, like, it's like one of the great shows of all time. Now, people are going to laugh, but it's like a great, great show. And Sophia Bush leaving, I thought was going to hurt it more but it really didn't have an impact because the other characters they brought on are so good, you know? So. Yeah, that's yeah. good.
3: That's good. You know, the, the struggle. That's the struggle. The thing that we always had to try and figure out in Chicago PD versus Chicago fire was how much of it is a case of the week and how much is, of it is um, uh, personal storylines going to be a part of the show. And so I think there was always a push and a pull, you know, like law and order was so much. It just started with, okay, there's a dead body and the two cops with their, notebooks, taking the where were you on the night of, whatever. And PD, we tried to push a little farther into, all right, let's go home with them. Let's enjoy some of their personal lives um, that Mahmood didn't do. And so I think for me, that that was one of the really interesting parts of PD is that there's actually characters in there.
2: Yeah, and everything's like, it's, it's like a half soap opera, half like storyline, you know, like who, who's with who right now. And like, you know, it, it, that stuff is, you know, why are they going to break up? Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. <laughs> but, but how you tied in, uh, you know, the brothers from Chicago Med and Chicago PD, I like too. I thought that was a good little twist.
3: Yeah, the crossover thing, like every show is trying to do it now. That was uh, that was something that just came out of. We had uh, um, Dawson, played by James Cata. He was the brother of Dawson on Chicago Fire. And then we just started these crossovers that just became bigger and bigger, which actually are, are pretty difficult to pull off just because you have different writers' rooms, different union issues to deal with. You know, you bring SVU, and they sh- they do everything in New York. So that was the whole thing. Um, there was always the question of how are we going to get Mariska Hargitay and Jason Begay, Voight, and Benson together. And uh, that was always the the, the writers' question is will they ever sleep together. So, um he usually ended with a glass of whiskey instead. But those crossovers were fun, but they were complicated.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. This is like this, like one of the great moments in my uh, broadcasting life right here. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you talk about it on the air a couple times,
3: and, and that was a great moment for me. So I appreciate you plugging the, the Chicago
2: world. Absolutely.
0: Hey Michael, thanks for calling in, man. I appreciate it. I know you're uh, out vacationing, but I I knew Jeff was a fan. You knew it, so um, I don't know. I don't know if we can still have any any hoodies lying around for Jeff and Stan, but let me know if I can line that up for those guys.
3: I'll hook that up if Jeff will break down the 1982 Kansas City Kings for me sometime on the air because I really I was a giant uh, Scott Wedman fan and I really want to hear more about that. I don't think that that team gets enough love. All right, deal. Birdsong, song, Bird song yeah. Lacy Wedman. I want to hear more about those guys.
0: We'll try to get Breen to segue it in at some point. Thanks
3: a lot, man. Appreciate it.
2: All right. See you guys.